The Online Marketing Show. Every day with Joseph Bushnell. Helping you to grow your online business by driving more traffic, improving conversion rates, increasing customer value, and getting things done fast. Listen, take action, make money. Hey, welcome to the Online Marketing Show. This is Joey Bushnell. Today's special guest is a fantastic copywriter. His name is John Ford. Go to copywritersroundtable.com to find out more. John, thank you for being on the call with me today. Glad to be here. John, how did you become a copywriter? Uh, well, it, it, <laughs> you're going to learn pretty quickly. You have to be careful with asking me any questions that involve stories. <laughs> I have a tendency to go on, but um, I'll try to give you, the say, the medium version. Um, I guess uh, way going way back to when I was in college, uh, I I had thought about wanting to be a, a copywriter only because or to get into advertising because uh, I like to write and I also like to draw and I just thought, thought uh, I needed some kind of creative outlet where I could actually make money doing those things and kind of, instead of being a starving artist. But um, and and at one point I was actually a friend and I also used to uh, write ad copy uh, in exchange for beer. We had friends who were in marketing classes. So we uh, we used to write ad there. We, they would have projects where they would have to come up with ads. And we said, well, we'll write your ads if you go get a case of beer. And when you come back, we'll, you'll have your ad. But um, I kind of gave up on that. I got out of college. I did some uh, – informational interviews, went around talking to ad agencies to try and find out if that's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, and, and honestly, that really turned me off from the idea because uh, the agency life, you know, people, when I tell people I'm an advertising copywriter, if they even know what it is, then they ask me what agency I work for. The agency life is incredibly uh, high pressure and difficult and cutthroat. Um, and I didn't want to do that. So I, I ended up going back to school, studying uh of all things, um, classical literature and philosophy, uh, which you would think would be useless, but it turned out that um, I saw a posting there for an internship to work for a publishing company, and I thought, well, maybe there's something there. I ended up working at the publishing company as an intern and found out that the guy who founded the company had started out as a copywriter himself, and he offered to train me. So um, there's a little bit more to it than that that's totally Pointless for your listeners, but I'll tell you anyway, briefly, I, I at the time was uh, single and somebody from the design department asked me uh, if I wanted a business card. And she happened to be an attractive young woman. And I thought, OK, well, I'll, she'll put together a business card for me and maybe I'll have a business card to hand anybody who's willing to talk to me. And uh, I didn't know what to put on there as my job title. So I figured the guy who owned the company was a copywriter, so I put copywriter on there. And when the cards showed up, he said, you get business cards? What did you get put on the business cards? And I said, uh, copywriter? And he said, oh, well, that sounds good. I'll teach you how to do that. So that's really how I got into copywriting. <clears throat> then it did take, uh, after starting that training, it did take a long period of trial and error and writing things that didn't work and a lot of um, – reading of all these guys, you know, now you see the blogs and things like that, but then it was library books, uh, things on tape that I'd listened to in the car and things like that about marketing. So that's how I got into it. Cool. So these days you're a freelance copywriter and you, you train people how to write copy. 
Right. Well, I worked with this uh, one group. It's a publishing company in the United States um, called Agora, mm-hmm. and they publish a lot of uh, travel they have newsletters of different types, financial, travel, health. And, and I've written for all the different ones that they had, and I was working for them as an employee. And I still work with them as my main client, but I'm freelance. It just works out better for me mm-hmm. um, to be freelance. So. Very cool. And uh, Agora is a massive, very famous company. So congratulations. They're huge now. They're, they were uh, about 25 employees when I started. Mm-hmm. And now they have uh, 400 in Baltimore, maybe 150 in London, and, uh, another 60 or so in Paris, and then a few other places around the world. So, John, in today's interview, I wanted to ask you some questions about copywriting and about how we can improve our own copywriting. These questions are inspired from some free reports which you're giving away on your website. And there's some really great information in there, so it gave me lots of ideas. Uh, I took some of these ideas from the reports, and we're going to be discussing them in today's interview. So, one thing that you mentioned is... You do your brainstorming in chunks of 33 minutes and 33 seconds. I was wondering, why do you do this? That um, that is something that uh, I guess if you're you're an old school copywriter, it's like a it's like an old uh, legend of the copywriting thing, but it might not be as well known now. But there was a guy in the late '60s, early '70s, and I guess into the '80s uh, named Gene Schwartz. Mm-hmm. Gene Schwartz is one of the great uh, copywriting gurus up there with Ogilvy and some of the other people, and he was more a direct response guy, but hugely successful, sold a lot of uh, a lot of stuff and, and had a lot of great ideas on how to write copy. And and uh, just as an aside, if you can find a copy of his book on copywriting, um, it is uh, – it's on marketing in general. But it is very good and it's very different from other kinds of copywriting books because it's not just like little quick tips. It's actually some thoughtful insight about the whole business. Uh, it's called Breakthrough Advertising. It's been out of print for a long time, but there are copies that circulate on the web that we're looking for. And one of the things that's in that book is that he talks about how he would get started, like his working process during the day. He had a kitchen timer that was a digital timer, um, and he would sit down and he'd say, um, I can't get up. I can I, If I sit here and stare at the page and nothing happens, that's what happens. But I can't get up for a certain period of time. Um, because I would just force myself to start writing because that would get him started. And the way he did it would be he would tap the number three four times because it would be 33 minutes and 33 seconds. And he'd say, I, I just have to sit here for that amount of time and um, I'll, and see what comes out. And uh, what really happens is, well, for some people, we're very strict with that. Um, I know a guy who's a, a very good copywriter in uh, Baltimore. And this is what he does every day. He sits down and he writes for 33 minutes and 33 seconds. Then he gets up. He takes a five-minute break. He sits down and he does it again for 33 minutes, 33 seconds. And he does that six times in the day, first thing. After that, he may write some more. He may do some research. He may answer work-related emails or do phone calls or things like that. But as long as he gets that in, he's very productive. I find that when I do get started – I don't want to stop. So I just, I sometimes I just say, well, I'm just going to work in a four hour, a four hour block. And I'll, I'll do that. Um, but at, at least the idea of this 33 minutes thing is that, um, you get rolling. So it prevents you from 
you know, procrastinating to go off and look at emails and things like that. Sure. John, when the 33 minutes and 33 seconds are up, do you always stop? Or sometimes if you're on such a roll, would you carry on? How does that work for you? Yeah, well, that's what I was saying there, that um, I, I often find myself carrying on. I, I continue. I just ignore it and, and uh, reset the timer. But I do actually have a timer on, you know, you can get find all these uh, free um, applications that you can run on a Mac or a PC um, that actually set a time. And I have I have one that's set up on, on mine that is actually 33 minutes, just sort of symbolically, I guess. But and and that applies, by the way, for when you sit down to brainstorm with people. You know, if you if you're working with a client, you're going to want to talk to them and get ideas uh, for whatever the project is that you're working on. Hopefully, they'll have so many ideas that they'll do a lot of the work for you. But often those meetings can be better if you say to them, "We'll we're going to meet for exactly one hour, or we're going to meet for exactly an hour and a half, or for 45 minutes." Um, so that they know that there's a limit on the amount of time because people feel that pressure toward the end, um, and that's essential. My next question was, again, something from your report where you mentioned the six lead types. What are the six lead types? Uh, well, this was something that came out of a, um, a conversation I had with a, a friend of mine and, and a mentor, uh, Michael Masterson, who he and I were set to teach a uh, writing seminar in France. Um, for people who were coming in to France, they were going to a chateau, and we had to come up with what it was we were going to talk about. And um, I had said that when I was on the plane, I had been reading a, uh, I've been reading an article about fiction writings. A friend is Michael's a fan of fiction, and I, I am too, and I, we both have tried our hand at writing fiction, and um, it was describing how there are only a certain number of plots. In, um, in movies and in great works so that they pretty much all follow a, a certain formula. And yet there have been obviously, you know, tens of thousands or I don't know, hundreds of thousands of different works written. And there are so many things that are, are classics and great, even though they all follow, follow a similar formula. You know, so for instance, uh, the Romeo and Juliet story has been told a thousand different ways or like the, you know, the basic fairy tales that kids love have been told a thousand different ways or, or the coming of age stories. So we thought, <clears throat> isn't that interesting? I want, we wondered if uh, promotions were the same way, advertising. So we sat down with a stack of ads and we went through this stack of ads and we found patterns that started to um, just show themselves. So I'm not sure if the six patterns that we found are the only types of lead types. There may be others, um, and there may be shades of gray in between, and there's definitely a mix between the lead types. Mm -hmm. But it, we, what we found was that it was helpful to think of uh, certain segments of certain kinds of leads so that when you sit down and you think, uh, how should I start? What should I? How should I shape this promotion? You can do it according to... Um, narrowing the field by saying I have these six to choose from. It's like having a shorter menu in a restaurant instead of a long one because it becomes easier then to decide what you're going to do. So uh, I'm telling you all the background of this so that you understand why the lead types are what they are. Uh, and, and in order to do that, I also have to preface it with this. One of the things that we noticed was that when we did the lead types, um, they 
they also seemed to be, uh, this is another Gene Schwartz thing. He said that um, you have to figure out where your customer is when you write to them. So that some of your customers are going to be um, very familiar with who they who you are. They're going to be very aware of what you're selling and what you care about and, and uh, things like that. And they're also going to be very aware of what they need. Others are going to be way at the other end of the spectrum where they don't know who you are. They might not even know the problem that they have that you're offering to solve. And they might not know um, that there's a solution out there. And then in between, they're just, uh, they're just various shades of this awareness. So this awareness thing helped us organize this list that I'm about to give you of six lead types. What we figured was that the people who are very aware of who you are, you talk to them one way, and the people who are not very aware of who you are, that you talk to them another way. It's kind of like when you meet somebody at a party. If you see an old friend, you don't reintroduce yourself and warm them up and things like that. You start speaking to them very directly. You know, what do you want to do next Saturday or something like that? But if it's somebody you don't know, you have to talk to them in a different way. You have to get to know them. You have to kind of introduce who you are. You have to be careful that what you say doesn't give them the wrong impression and things like that. So these six lead types fall basically along that line of awareness. So at the most aware end, you're going to talk to somebody you don't need to warm them up is a, an offer lead. So you're going to somebody, um, I'm going to give you this for this price or, uh, you know, right now available, you get this and you get this other thing free, et cetera. And you, you let them know right away you're selling something, but here's the deal. So that's right up front. That's the very direct way to speak to somebody who's very aware of what's available and they just want to know what the deal is. Then the second type is a little less direct, but it's pretty clear that you're selling something. You make a promise. And this is the kind of ads, uh, you, you saw, you see a lot of these ads, like when you go back over the history of advertising, somebody just making a promise uh, about how to do something. Um, then a little bit further removed from that, people who are aware of the problems that they have, but they're not so sure that they don't know that there's a solution out there, um, the problem solution. So you you immediately talk to them about the pain. This is like, I feel your pain, and oh, is this terrible? Um, and then you come at them with some kind of offer to solve that problem. So this is like, I always think of this like, um, we used to have a thing in the States for Alka-Seltzer. I don't know if they ran the same ads in the UK, but... Um, in the 70s or so, it was this guy who would come onto the TV screen and he would be kind of overweight and he'd be holding his belly and he'd look kind of sick. And uh, he would say, I can't believe I, I ate the whole thing, meaning he ate a whole pizza or something like that. And he felt terrible. And then they would show the glass of water and they would drop the Alka-Seltzer in and it would start to fizz and it would say, plop, plop, fizz, fizz, oh, what a relief it is. So the problem is this guy ate too much stuff and he feels awful, and the solution is this relief that comes from this Alka-Seltzer that has this fizzing action, et cetera. Okay. So it's, uh, uh, they, uh, you, you get their attention because they're aware of the problem, that's where their emotions are, and then you offer them the answer. Then it moves to <clears throat> slightly more to the side where you have to, uh, the less aware side, where you have to be less direct and being less direct, uh, you have to warm them up a little bit. And on this side, 
um, you tend to just go to these things that you know generally, you don't know as much about the person or how they feel or where they are, but now you're starting to make uh, make uh, inroads to them that you know that people in general respond to. For instance, one thing that people really respond to is secrets. Everybody likes to hear secrets, and everybody hates to be left out of some kind of secret thing. You know, if you have a secret solution or some kind of conspiracy and you lean forward and whisper, uh, people will lean in to hear. So that fourth kind of lead type is a, a secret lead, like the secret to um, the secret to uh, an income-rich retirement or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, this is where, like, you might have, if you have a secret strategy or a system or whatever, the key to these secrets promotions is that, um, of course, the thing you're selling is access to the secret, which means that nowhere in the copy do you want to reveal the secret. Or if you reveal the secret, then you better have a much stronger secret behind it that you can continue to tease, and they don't find out what the answer is until they fill out, fill out the uh, reply form and send in money. Then now you're getting to like the further distant, unaware people. And this is a category that we really struggled to come up with uh, because we had so many things that seemed like they fit in there. Um, it's, it's kind of a hard idea to describe, but... Uh, we call it declarations. And a declaration is where you, you, you say something that's really strong and outrageous, but definitely emotionally relevant to the person you're talking to. So like a big prediction about something that's happening. Um, we had one where, um, somebody was talking about, uh, the, there's a famous one that went around where this guy is talking about, um, uh, a threat to people's health from, um, I can't remember whether it was uh, the wrong kinds of supplements or something about that was all wrong with people's diets and things like that. And his headline was, read this or die, which is outrageous. But it's sitting there on the table and you figure, well, am I not going to read it? I mean, you know you're not going to die, but you feel like it's pretty irresponsible not to find out why you would say something like that. So you pick it up and so the declarations extend tends to be something very strong and outrageous. However, it can't be just outrageous. You know, like people use that example, sex, 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 now that I have your attention, because everybody likes sex. Mm -hmm. However, that doesn't work because as soon as you get into that, unless you're selling something that's related to sex and that person you're talking to is interested in something related to sex, and that's the problem they're trying to solve, then they're going to not be interested because it's not relevant. They know that you just tricked them. So anyway, a strong declaration. And then the very last category is like a fail-safe safety net um, stories so that um, it's just an observation about character. And this is uh, E.M. Forster well, we used to say this and he used to give this uh, speeches that he gave it, uh, at Oxford uh, in the series of speeches. And the first speech that he gave was about how people just can't resist a good story. And that's it's just true that um, stories are how we relate to each other. It's how we relate history. It's how we pass on lessons. And, uh, it just is an easier way to contain things than, say, uh, hitting somebody with a lot of statistics or things like that. So sometimes if you have a story that's representative of an idea, that you just tell the story. So that's we have so many promotions that start with rags to riches stories or uh, stories like where I was just like you, and etc. Um, so those are the six types. Offer, promise, Problem solutions, secrets, declarations, and stories. Brilliant, John. That was great. Thanks a lot for sharing. My next question is, what is the power of one, and how can that help us 
with our copywriting. Well, that that was a similar um, that was an observation that came about in a similar way as the stories one, um, where we were trying to figure out what it is. You know, often when you're trying to teach something, that's uh, it's a good way to learn something. So yourself. So we were trying to think what was it that made uh, copy stand out and and uh, seem to work well. And um, one thing that just seemed to be clear was that the better the focus was, the easier it was to build the rest of the copy. So there's this other idea that's related to this uh, called the golden thread. I don't know if you've heard that before. Yeah. Yeah, this is an idea. It's in certainly in copywriting, but, you know, a lot of these writing things are true of all kinds of writing and expression so that um, – when you know what the one thing is that you want to say, the one thing that you want to have come across, and you worked that out before you start to write, it's much easier to write. And then everything that follows behind it becomes much easier to write. So the golden thread is this idea that you keep returning to that one theme. And I used to teach you have to find the golden, you know, you have to get this golden thread and you have to keep returning to the golden thread. But then realize that... Um, some people didn't know what the golden thread was supposed to be anchored to. And what it's supposed to be anchored to is this one idea that's so important. So if you have a promotion that goes on and tells a bunch of different stories all at once and goes all over the place, you might lose the, the reader because they just get confused with what you're trying to tell them. But when you've really worked out the one thing that you want to tell them, then you have this way of knowing um, all throughout what you can cut and what you should include. So that's the the power of one. The power of one is that once you establish that idea in the beginning, you just get more of a better result. A little bit like uh, that party scenario again. You're telling a joke or telling a story. You know that the times that you tell a joke and you can't remember the punchline or you start adding details or somebody keeps correcting you, like saying, no, it doesn't go like this, it goes like that, it ruins the telling of the joke. But when you can, when you know exactly where you're headed, to the punch where the punchline is, then you can deliver it better. And this is the same idea. My next questions are all linked. Uh, one of your reports was the 15 most deadly mistakes that copywriters make. And in there, there were four issues that copywriters might face. They're almost like a chain, like a sequence of events that I'd like to explore. So I'll say what they are now, and then we'll explore them in a minute. So the first one was having the right product, but writing to the wrong audience. The next one was writing to the right audience, but with the wrong problem. The next one was the right problem, but the wrong promise. And the last one was the right promise at the wrong time. Um, I thought this was really valuable information, so I'd love to delve into it a little bit deeper. So first of all, how can we avoid writing about the right product, but to the wrong audience? Well, I'm glad, I'm glad that you bunched them all together because I, I did uh, was thinking about it and was thinking... Um, I would actually want to respond to them at first in a way that, that deals with all of them, which is to say that uh, you had said, um, how can we avoid writing and how can we avoid in these things? And indeed, that report was about avoiding the mistakes. Uh, but it does deserve a caveat, which is that it's not going to be possible to always avoid, always avoid any of these things. Um, and for most of them, the single best way to avoid them is simply just knowing that the risk is out there because they're going to come along and most of the time it's going to it's going to start happening before you notice. And the sooner you can notice and reverse your tracks, that's, that's the best way, best thing to do. But certainly there's a general attitude toward, um, 
the things that you're doing that will end up helping you avoid some of these problems, at least at least avoiding them with any kind of frequency. Mm-hmm. So this idea of the right product in the wrong to the wrong audience. This is um, I'll, I'll talk about it like if you're talking about a client. You might have a client come on uh, a client who's got a product that they really put a lot of time into, that they really care about, um, and they're just not they're just not getting the result that they expect. And, and oftentimes that can happen because they are not understanding who their customers are. So um, it's it's very easy to be somebody in a business who's very smart and who's a um, great engineer or something or a great, uh, I don't know, whatever it is, a, a great manager or something like that, but not understand uh, the audience or to have it aspire to having a certain audience that you just don't have. You know, this is like you imagine somebody who has like a fish and chip shop who wants to get in, um, you know, members of parliament or something, uh, people who are, um, it's just, it's just not the right crowd. And yet it might be the best fish and chip shop in the world. It's just reaching the wrong people. Now I was, when I was thinking about it, I was thinking about, um, actually, in a, rather than a mistake story, I was thinking about a success story that everybody pretty much knows is that uh, the Apple advertising for a while was this, I'm a Mac, I'm a PC, which is actually something that they tried to develop in the 80s, and they did in kind of a clumsy way, and then somebody must have found those old ads and simplified them. Um, but uh, here's a company who could have gone out saying, hey, we've got this great computer, um, it it uh, works really well, and uh, everything is streamlined. It looks sleek, and all these things. Why don't we go out and get the people with the big bucks, the big money, who are in business, top executives, and uh, you know all those very serious people? If they had done that, they would have just been competing against everybody else who goes to that market, the HP and the, the Whoever else makes a laptop, IBM makes those kind of laptops. And instead, they what they did was realize, made possibly accidentally because of the personalities who were involved, mm-hmm. um, was realized that that's not what their product meant to the people who used it. The people who used it saw it as a bit of an extension of themselves, and even as a way to define how they wanted to see themselves. And this is like a big key thing. You have to understand not just how good your product is, but how do the people that you're marketing to want to see themselves? This is true in in relationships too, you know, in friendships and things like that. What people like about you, if they like you, is how you make them feel about themselves. So when, uh, this sounds like relationship advice, but like when a relationship is going sour, it's usually because you are, uh, denigrating the way that person feels about themselves. You're, you're making them feel like they should feel stupid or like they're not adequate enough or something like that. And that's often what's going on. Well, on the flip side, the, the Apple was able to say, well, these guys, they want to see themselves as this arty guy who's kind of hip and cool and laid back. Um, and that's what they targeted. And that worked extremely well. So, um, so that was their point. But but what's interesting about the Apple people is that they they themselves were kind of like that crowd. And what you're 
what a client will often find or what you'll often find about a product is that the people that they should be targeting are often a lot like them so that their personalities are very similar. And I had somebody who was in, uh, uh, in Germany that I did some work with tell me that they found that customers who came in actually had similar personalities to the copywriters who wrote the copy. And they could tell almost who wrote the copy by what the customer was like. So, so that's the answer to that one. So you have the next one, how to avoid writing to the right audience about the wrong problem. This one's similar to the one above. The only way to really avoid it is to really know your audience and what they care about and what they really, how they really feel. So what, um, one way to think about it is what is it that keeps them up at night? You know, what's, what is their emotional center? The thing that is really, um, on their minds all the time that they can't help worrying about, that they can't help talking to people about. That's what they're going to respond to. So if you have, uh, if you have the audience and you're writing to them about a problem you think they should have, or you think they should be worried about, or that they're probably worried about, but it's not the biggest thing that they're worried about, then you're not going to get as much of a response. So you could, the only way you can know, you know, this is like if you're talking to somebody who, who's say, uh, older than somebody who's over 60. And you think that the problem they should be worried about is uh, heart disease. But they think that the problem they should be worried about is how to not let their arthritis bother them when they're trying to go hiking or something because they're part of this younger, older generation. You know, if you get it wrong, then, you know, probably heart disease is something tangential to what they worry about. But it might be this other thing. So you have to know you have to know what it is that's uh, at the the front edge of of their problems. Okay. Um, actually, there's a, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm not sh- quite sure which one of these it fits with. Um, maybe this one or maybe the next one, but it is uh, uh, good to know. So Kleenex, you know, Kleenex tissues used to be something that they marketed in the U.S. At, uh, for women to remove face cream. And they did that for years. And then... Um, Something like nine or years or so after they were introduced, this guy um, had hay fever in the in the office, and he took a Kleenex out of his pocket and he blew his nose into it. And somebody saw him do that and said, "What are you doing?" And he said, oh, "I just I I just think it's disgusting to keep having to wash my handkerchief, so I just use these as dispos- disposable handkerchiefs for my wife's face, you know." Face cleaning things. And she thinks that's disgusting too. But the other guy thought, hey, that's a great idea. So they started marketing that. Um, it actually ended up being a bit of wrong audience and wrong problem where they discovered the right audience with the right problem, which rapidly overtook the use of Kleenex for taking off facial cream. And then they started holding contests and asking people to write in what they used Kleenex for. And people had, you know, use them for cleaning their glasses or use them as, uh, a tea filter, a coffee filter, um, all kinds of things, crazy things that people wrote in. And, and still blowing your nose tends to be the top one, but they would not have discovered that had, you know, they just not happened across this thing and, and uh, learned a little bit of something about the audience that was using them. Okay, so how can we avoid having the right problem but the wrong promise? Okay, so so here you might um, you might come along and you, and you know what it is that they're worried about. Um, and you 
you're trying to figure out, well, I know that that is a hot button issue. And then you go out there and you try and sell them something. And you're hoping that the thing that you sell them is the best solution to what they're, what they have. Mm-hmm. Um, this one, I guess more the, the, the only way you can avoid that is, uh, is by making sure that you're really solving the problem. It's, uh, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, interesting aspect of advertising because people usually think of, uh, people who are selling stuff and advertising as somebody who's an expert at, at, uh, tricking somebody into buying something. But actually there is an aspect of advertising that, um, can do, can, if you're doing it right, can do the opposite. It can make you and the business that's doing the advertising more honest because, um, the easiest product to sell is one that's good. That's one that does, is the best one for what the customer needs. So, you know, a lot of us these days work with information products and, and those are great because you don't need to restart the assembly line or anything to fix an information project, product. You, you need to just go out and get better information, get the answers to the questions people want solved. Um, that's not always the same for, for everything, but sometimes solving the problem um, it means looking at the product and making sure that your your packaging right or your, or it is right or that um, you're not leaving something out. So that's the best way to avoid that is to make sure that you're coming out with the right promise. And the other the other aspect of this, and it kind of jumps into the next one too about uh, giving the right promise at the wrong time, is that it's possible to come out with the wrong promise if your promise sounds like the promise everybody else is making. So your your timing for a, a a promise, the uniqueness of a promise where it sounds original and new, is at least partly dependent on you, not just offering something that's different from what everybody else offers, but making sure that everybody else isn't also making the same claims that you're making at the same moment. This is shades of different, uh, the same thing. So how can we avoid giving the right promise at the wrong time? The answer there is really just that you have to be, uh, you have to be ahead of the market. You have to be reading as much as you can. You have to be talking to people. Um, you have to be talking about the solution a lot and, uh, you just have to get a good sense of what the market is and whether you're in sync with that. Mm-hmm. So David Ogilvy, um, used to say that if you were hiring copywriters, um, that there was one personal characteristic above all others that would make for a great copywriter. And uh, he said that, that was that they were insatiably curious. So you find that people, the people who end up being good copywriters are the type um, who just, they just can't get enough of looking at, they, they read everything they can get their hands on. They may watch a lot of popular culture stuff. Um, they, are the type that get really passionate about ideas and um, just want to yammer on about them all the time. You probably see them over by the bar talking all the time. Um, they're boring the hell out of their family and spouses with the things that they're writing on because they talk about them all the time. So um, that's that's very key. And that part of why that helps is because that helps you figure out exactly what is going on in the minds of the people that you're writing to and where they are at that point. So, um, and this is just can bring it back around to, to Gene Schwartz again. He used to talk about a thing in, in that breakthrough advertising where he says, uh, you, you have your greatest success 
with an ad message when you manage to ride the tide of mass desire. So there's a moment when desire surges and you, you have to be able to um, be aware enough to step in at that moment. It's like uh, catching a wave. So, and, and another good book recommendation um, on that same point is called The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell, which came out a long time ago. But that whole thing is about um, getting in at exactly the right moment. When you're doing a promotion, John, do you consciously write keeping all these five factors in mind, product, audience, problem, promise, and timing? Are they things that you make sure that you've got all of those elements nailed before you would ever release a piece of copy? I would say that now, uh, I've been doing this 20 years, so it's um, it, a lot of it is reflex. So I don't necessarily go down it as a checklist. I think the checklist is helpful when you're in um, that phase where you feel like there's a lot, an overwhelming lot of things that you have to pay attention to. Or when you're trying to figure out what kind of conversation to have with a client. Um, so when you sit down, you wouldn't want to say, so do we have the right product at the wrong time or whatever? But it, it helps inform you for the kinds of questions you're going to ask a client in that first brainstorming um, to draw them out. Because that, that stuff that you can draw out of them is where you, you know, it's where you start finding clues for what you can put together. I wouldn't, um, if I, if I thought about these at this point, it might be sometimes in hindsight or sometimes as it's going on, I'll think, oh, it sounds like we've got a good product here, but this is the wrong mailing list or, um, this is not the best promise we can make with this or maybe this product is just not good, um, which certainly happens, you know, sometimes. Uh, even that, even so, there are times that I put something out and I'll really think that the idea is great. And um, I'm thinking of one I did for a financial newsletter a few years ago. And the guy was recommending stocks related to um, water, investing in water, which uh, pipelines and uh, uh, pump companies and um, people with desalinization technology and all this other stuff. There are lots of things related to this. And this was a big focus of his newsletter. So we wanted to put out a promotion that was making a big um, claim about where the water market was headed. And this was uh, this is actually like a very common theme now, but at the time it was not a very common theme. And he and I both really believed in it. The more I read this, the more I was like, I am going to take a whole bunch of cash and put it into um, water investments and all this other stuff. And not only that, the investments that he picked out, they did extremely well. They went up like 700% or something crazy. Um, however, the timing for the market was just not that good. It was not in the middle of a dry season. There was no drought. And everybody that I spoke to would seem skeptical. They were like, well, yeah, but if you turn on the faucet, water comes out and it's really cheap. So, <laughs> so it's hard to believe. So we really thought it was great, but the, the timing just seemed to be off. And it, later on, it did kind of pick up some speed, but um, that would be like an example of something I thought was, was a good promise, but it was just the wrong time. Brilliant. Thank you, John, for this interview. It's been really great. Where can we get more information from you? Uh, well, I, I put out a weekly e-letter called the Copywriters Roundtable, and there is a sign-up uh, site online. It's just copywritersroundtable.com. Uh, so copywriters roundtable, all one word, and then dot com. And uh, you, as you said, there's some free reports there that pe people can pick up. 
Uh, to be perfectly honest, I don't put a lot of time into updating the articles on the web page, the sign-up page. Uh, I just write the ones that go out during the week, and I have some guest writers and things like that. Um, so if you put your email address in there, um, you start getting the you'll get a link for the reports, and then every Tuesday you get an issue. So and eventually I'll uh, go there and put some new stuff up on the website as well. Okay, cool. And uh, by the way, I love the free reports and the newsletter too. In fact, your newsletter has been called one of the best on the planet by one of the world's most respected copywriters, Bob Bly. So that's quite a testimonial for your newsletter, John. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. So I can't recommend it enough. And on that note, we'll bring our conversation to a close. Many thanks to everyone who tuned in. And John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. The Online Marketing Show. Every day with Joseph Bushnell, helping you to grow your online business by driving more traffic, improving conversion rates, increasing customer value, and getting things done fast. Listen, take action, make money.